Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, November 17th episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us on poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Tanner Menard, with whom I will be discussing their poem, The Sunrise of Jacqueline, and my poem, Afraid. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of November 18th. On Monday, November 18th, from 8.30 p.m., Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting its weekly open mic at Seamus McCaffrey's Irish Pub and Restaurant at 18 West Monroe Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 8 p.m. On Tuesday, November 19th, from noon to 1 p.m., Rosemary Dombrowski and the students of her poetic therapy class at ASU will be hosting the first of a two-part medical poetry workshop. This will be taking place in room B106 in ASU's Health Sciences Education Building, which is located at 435 North 5th Street in Phoenix. From 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop in Room 101 of the Chandler Community Center at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. On Wednesday, November 20th, from 5 to 10 p.m., Walt Richardson II will be hosting his weekly walk-in Wednesday's open mic night at the Tempe Center for the Arts, which is at 700 West Rio Salado Parkway in Tempe. This is a two-part event where from 5 to 6, youth and high schoolers can perform, and from 6 to 10, all other performers can go on. Signing up for the first part starts at 4.45 p.m., and signing up for the second part starts at 5 p.m. From 7 to 8.30 p.m., the Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Writing will be hosting its 2019 ASU Undergraduate Showcase at Piper Writer's House, which is at 450 East Tyler Mall in Tempe. On Thursday, November 21st, from 6 to 9 p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting its weekly open mic night at 3131 East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From 7.30 to 9 p.m., District 4 Poetry will be hosting its monthly poetry open mic at Jarrah's Coffee, Tea, and Gallery, which is at 154 West Main Street in Mesa. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Joe Bot Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. From 9.45 p.m., Atlas St. Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner at 929 East Pierce Street in Phoenix. On Friday, November 22nd, from 5 to 7 p.m., the Recovery Education Center will be hosting its 2019 graduation ceremony, which will include poetry readings from graduate Luke T. This will take place at Recovery Innovations at 2701 North 16th Street, Suite 316 in Phoenix. 
from 6 to 10 p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting its open mic night at 1982 North Alma School Road in Chandler. From 6.30 to 8 p.m., the Marshall Chair Borderlands Poetry and Performance Series and Virginia G. Piper Center for Creative Arts will be hosting their The Poetics of Borders, Race, and Capital with Wendy Trevino and Chris Nealon at Palabras Bilingual Bookstore at 1738 East McDowell Road in Phoenix. From 6.30 to 8 p.m., Equality Arizona will be hosting its monthly career poetry salon with open mic for the LGBTQIA community, featuring this month Julian de la Cruz and Kay Leith. This will be taking place at 949 South Maple Avenue in Tempe. You can RSVP by emailing tanner at equalityarizona.org. Tanner is spelled T-A-N-N-E-R. On Saturday, November 23rd, from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., the Arizona State Poetry Society will be hosting its fall conference, Poetry and Music, at the Pyle Adult Recreation Center at 655 East Southern Avenue in Tempe. You can find out more information about the event by emailing azpoetryorg at gmail.com. Again, that's azpoetryorg at gmail.com. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Tanner Menard. Hi, Tanner. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hey, hello. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Course. So you brought with you the sunrise of Jacqueline. Before we have you read that, however, I would love to hear you tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Tanner Bernard. I am a non-binary, two-spirit Louisiana Creole, and I belong to the Atakapa Ishak Nation, which is a little tribe in Louisiana. I've been in Phoenix this time around for about two and a half years. And I'm also an organizer with Equality Arizona. And through Equality, I co-curate with non-binary poet Elliot Winter a reading series called Queer Poetry Salon. Mm -hmm. And also doing other reading series of trans and non-binary poets in the Phoenix area. Wonderful. For those who are not familiar, can you tell us a little bit about Equality Arizona? Yeah, absolutely. We're the state's leading LGBTQ organization. We are intersectional and Mm anti-racist. We're run by trans and non-binary people, and our board is primarily people of color, women, trans people. And we're doing truly intersectional work in the state to liberate all queer Arizonans across racial and economic disparities. And I was hired to do community organizing around poetry, literature, and arts events. So the idea is like I'm building community, and at the same time, the communities that we're building, we can call upon to mobilize to defend our rights as LGBTQ people in the state. Yes, which we really need right now. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it was ever easier before. Yeah, there's definitely some interesting challenges with the Supreme Court Mm, yeah, yeah. Decision and just lawmakers of a certain type that um, their strategy is really to like chip away at rights. Mm-hmm. I'm, I really enjoy what I do, and I'm also a very dedicated poet. And I've 
also released as of this date nine albums of experimental music mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what that's what i did in a sort of previous part of my life yeah i don't know if you want to talk about it you, you said that was the reason why you first came to phoenix right mm-hmm. yeah i was a visiting artist at arizona state university um, i did an installation there and then i met some kids that had a band and they're parents paid me to do some contract work with the band and I stayed out here for a time and mm-hmm. it had been about 12 years and I'm currently I'm, I'm I suppose I'm an Arizonan at this point <laughs> at some point we're going to have to say yes we're right. Arizonans and right. I'm hot anyway I'm very always <laughs> hot here <laughs> if that counts <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it, it's dry heat. It's though. dry, it's heat, dry heat. You do feel the difference. I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to you about your poetry, when did you start writing poetry? I've always been interested in poetry. I feel like it's a thread that ran concurrently with my music career. An album that was released in 2016 called Deepest Indigo, which I composed in 2009, the titles are segments from poems, and the album is meant to be played at random, so the poem constructs itself randomly through the titles as you play it. And were these found titles, or they're your own titles? I created them, so it's like a aleatoric poem in a way. It, it forms itself. Okay. I feel like I made a decision in high school to take my music composition more seriously. I studied that at LSU, and then I did some internships in the Bay Area around that, and had a career doing experimental music until I was about 30. And then I spent a number of years sort of focusing on my spiritual path and just being a human being. And then a few years ago, I needed a creative outlet and I began writing and I just sort of made a decision like, yeah, okay, I'm going to be a poet. And I just set it into the cosmos and have created that little by little I'm creating that reality. And I published my first chapbook along with an album of experimental music on Full Spectrum Records about a year ago today. Great. If you don't mind giving us a taste of your poetry, which is also in line with your experimental music that has that quality of however people choose to read it, Mm -hmm. aspect to it. Can Um, I say a few words about it? Yeah, absolutely. We can talk about it before or after, either one. Okay, I'm pretty much done with a manuscript called Poemophony and Soft, like a poem symphony. Mm. And so in this book, I have explored poetry as musical forms. Mm. And one of the things that I've had the thought of in this, when I was writing this, is that poetry tends to be like monophonic, like in the sense that, uh, like an a cappella singer, it's just Mm. one person singing. You know, there's no accompaniment or anything. And so I had the thought that it would be interesting to try to create contrapuntal poetry, Mm. meaning poetry that has more than one voice happening at a time. Right. And that as a performer, I could use the poem as a sort of score. So I could, instead of having to read it one way, I could approach the poem from a variety of different directions and basically almost improvise off of the words on the page Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that it never really comes out the same twice when you perform it or 
the reader doesn't have to read it the same way. It's not like start here, go there, start here, go there. Right, right. And then I'm also kind of creating images with it. So it, I guess it's a little bit like concrete poetry. I've also been reading, because they were anti-fascists and because of their relationship to the tarot, which I'm interested in because of a variety of different things, I'm really interested right now in the Dadaist and the Surrealist mm. poets, okay. mainly because they were anti-fascists. Mm-hmm. And we may live in a time where we need to be anti-fascist. What do you mean, uh, may? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we live in a time where we need to be anti-fascist. And so... Um, and these, that, that sounded very fascist with me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, the truth is the truth. As a non-binary person, these poems are about trees and the environment and being a non-binary human being. Cool. Okay, so because there is a visual aspect to your poems, can we see it anywhere, or will you be able to put it up somewhere so that people can see it? I'm shopping this poem and the poems like it around to journals right now. Um, One part of this poem that I know for sure is going to be published on Hunger Mountain magazine. Oh, great. But not this part that I'm going to read today. Okay. Uh, Which, by the way, to me looks like a walking mushroom. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's, thank you. That was the impression. I was like, hey, video game. Video game character is what I was thinking. Probably uh, Interesting. <laughs> Mario Brothers, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even play video games. <laughs> but yeah, so if you want to read that for us, it'd be great. Okay. No one says, is this tree a boy or a girl? The sunrise of Jacqueline, nails green, dark. She searched the colors, ragamuffin, rainbow, sunset shelf. The cost of green is worth a life in certain counties. Walking into the gas station far from the city, nails like eyes, all eyes on eyes. Emerald, how many breaths before they have the thought to take my green, my life, my green life, my very green life? No one says, is this tree a boy or a girl? My very green life, my green life. The sunrise of Jacqueline, my green nails, green, dark. She searched to take the colors ragamuffin. Have the thought, the cost of green before is worth a life. May I take in certain counties breaths? Walking into the gas station, I want to be not so much a tree or blew it. Action. I want to squander, stroking. I want something tentacles, fungal of tradition. Earthly that you noose, motion, my green life that says my green. Forever ago, land birthed a grammar. Knuckles, bone, joint whispers, point you have painted emerald. How many breaths may I take before they have the thought to take my green, my life, my green life, my very green life? No one says, is this tree a boy or a girl? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really powerful. I love the way you read it because it's, as I said, when I was reading it, because because I'm used to reading left to right, right. Up, up, down, it was a little bit difficult to figure out where things are, are supposed to be going. The way that you read it, the, the repetition and you choosing to read down, up, and then up, down again, may a lot more sense and it's very powerful it's kind of ironic that i chose the poem i did 
right. <laughs> because I wasn't sure what this was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. basically. Uh-huh. Right. So I feel like we had a connection. Good. So you have mentioned before to me before we started the interview that this is one part of a three-part mm-hmm. poem. Uh, maybe. Okay. Cur- currently. Currently. Yeah, so yeah. you might add to it. It's. I have about forty of these poems like this. Oh, okay. Uh, but these three seem to belong mm-hmm, mm-hmm. together. The ones that I have together right now. So I I don't know how that will all fall together, but. Okay. But did you write these three intending to be part of one? I try to write every day, and so when I get onto something, I just create as many of them as possible, and then oftentimes, like. I feel like 30 of them are no good, and a few of them are good enough to use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I will just like start gravitating around these, and mm-hmm. I feel like part of why these poems are coming out the way that they are is that I do a lot of work around non-binary activism, of course, for myself. And, you know, it's, it's not easy to be non-binary, mm-hmm. and I wanted to create poems that like non-binary people like people don't know how to read me mm-hmm. yeah you have mentioned that before right so the, i try to create poems that are non-binary in that sense that like the person doesn't know exactly it's not clear like a person that is a cis man or a cis woman like there are patterns that have been evolved over a long period of time that that person takes on f- for themselves and so we know how to read that like this is what a woman does, this is how she dresses, this is how she talks, this is the, the behaviors that society has indicated that she should do, and also in the same way for a man. And well, it's different, maybe. Sorry to interrupt, but I kind of want to inject a little bit because I feel like that's the impression that people get or society gets right. from cisgender people, whereas it's much more fluid as well. For sure, but I think that non-binary people, though we've always existed, now that we are demanding that we have more agency, that mm-hmm. part of what I see that we are doing is we are like throwing those norms totally out of the window and creating a way of being that is not. There's no one way to read it. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, like, are you a boy or a girl? No. <laughs> so, like. So the question is almost like the beautiful part where there is ne- not necessarily an answer to what a person is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that leaves freedom. And I'm not saying that it's not that that's not there for cisgendered people, but it's a it's like a pattern that we more readily recognize. Yeah, yeah. I was interviewing a trans person with whom we were talking a little bit about this, but I don't think I articulated the way that I was going to come out now, which is that cisgender people, I feel like a lot of time we have the option to just be mm-hmm. in some ways. Obviously, as I mentioned before, there is still a lot of fluidity because it's a spectrum, right? And you're right. not always at the, the very two ends of the spectrum, even if we might manifest that, physically speaking. But that transgender people, in many ways, are forced to make conscious choices of where on the spectrum they want to be. Mm-hmm. And so cisgender people don't necessarily think about it. They're more like sort of just going with, with the wind of society. 
Right. It's interesting because in that sense, I feel like transgender people almost have more agency or the privilege of agency because you're forced to, or transgender people are forced to consider, make conscious choices of where on the spectrum you want to fall. So you, you have the choice of conscious choice rather than people who are just saying, oh, I'm just this, but I never thought about it because physically... I manifest something that's much more familiar to society. I, yeah, I see. I see. I can understand that. And I think, though, that maybe the only caveat I would say is that freedom comes with a lot of risk because there's mm-hmm. still a great deal of violence and also uh, workplace discrimination. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, all parts being equal, which right. is not, obviously. Right. We, right. we all know that. I think. But I understand what you mean. Yes. Yeah. That you do get to kind of create your own adventure in a way. And although my experience is that it's not, it's a choice to do it, but it's not really a choice to have those desires. No, and no. The, not, that, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I feel like the choice is not so much a f- completely free choice. It's more a societally forced choice. Mm-hmm. Because as I said to the trans person, who I spoke with before is that she was telling me how she was considering her physique and how to her it was not feminine enough in some sense. And I was thinking, but what is feminine, right? Because cisgender women's physique also run the gamut. Right. And if there's no one form, even though, especially in the present day, where we are being pushed or there are certain gender norms that are being forced down our throats. Right. And so in some ways, I think cisgender people also have non-binary people to think in terms of almost forcing us to think about where on the spectrum do we occupy or do we want to occupy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a two-way street because society is made of all of us. Yeah, my personal feeling, I mean, I can't speak for any other person on earth. My feeling is when I was a kid 41 years ago, there were like 4 billion people on earth, I believe. (laughs) And now there are like 8. That's crazy. So that means that in my lifetime, the population of earth has doubled. And the less people breeding, the better. (laughs) <laughs> really, really, like we're consuming the earth. We are. We're consuming the earth. And I'm, of course, I love human life. Like I'm not advocating that we lessen the population at all. But I do believe that trans, non-binary, queer people are possibly some kind of like evolutionary adaptation that our species has for these kinds of moments so that there are human beings that can live and love one another and take care of one another and take care of children and be good members of the community and also that we can maintain massive populations without increasing them too much. That's just my thought, philosophical belief about it, but I believe we're an important part of the human family and that regardless if it's some kind of evolutionary thing, like we do have 8 billion people and we're headed towards 11 and (laughs) why not just do what you want 
You don't necessarily have to have a nuclear family, a man, a woman, babies, lots of babies. Two and a half, two and a half. We we can have, like... (laughs) And a dog. An agent or person that has an extended family and they help out, like, whatever they do. Like, they don't need to make babies. No, they don't. And I think only a very small percentage of non-binary people are not fertile. So you can have children. You could, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do have to make a conscious effort in terms of population awareness because it does become unsustainable at some point, and there is no earth twin or has what we haven't found it yet. We don't have the technology. Right. And I think certain population control techniques, as I saw on the John Oliver show last week tonight, recently with China, it's not working out as it should because there is an overabundance of male children, right. partly because of the tradition of prejudice against women. Right. So there's a lot that we need to think about because we cannot keep overproducing the way that we are and think that somehow the planet is just going to sustain us <laughs> when yeah, when we are basically ripping holes into the food network. There was just a report on CNN about how the salmon population is so devastated that they've canceled the season's fishing period and thinking about taking down dams. Wow. Yeah, because in conjunction with climate change, they're making the parts of the rivers that salmon have to swim up to too hot for them to survive through those parts. Right. So we are not only just killing ourselves through wars and famine and inequality and discrimination and whatnot, we're also killing ourselves through over-demand overpopulation, mm-hmm. poking holes into the food network. Well, as a, I mean, I'm an indigenous person. It's known that my tribe at one time um, had five genders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we don't exactly know what those are anymore. But what I do believe as an indigenous person is, and my observation of other indigenous people is that these genders other than extreme male and extreme female had functions in society like taking care of your nieces and nephews or being able to perform both gender roles or whatever it may have been mm-hmm. or being a medicine person. So I do believe that as in this modern time, we're going to form more ready roles in society Mm -hmm. and that they're going to be very useful my hope is is that queer people are able to like be part of the human family Mm -hmm. which you are which we are but (laughs) i mean like not in opposite like i feel in opposition too because we're always defending ourselves against something and i feel like i'm looking forward to the day when we're an appreciated and useful part of the human family that that there's no question about whether we should exist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we're like utilized yeah. to our full capacity as part of the culture, part of the society. And I think we're headed there, and I'm doing my part. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm always a little bit afraid of the utilitarian argument, just because people always think, oh, I think I know your purpose, and if you don't serve that purpose, you don't belong. Right. Partly because as someone who is not living a quote-unquote societally condoned or societally preferred life for a female, right. <laughs> 
I feel like there is that sense that somehow if you're not having family, you're not serving your purpose. And I've actually been told that by people who said you're being selfish because you're not having children. <laughs> like, uh... Right. <laughs> well, I wrote an essay, I wrote an essay which you can find on the University of Arizona Poetry Center blog called The, the Rule is Flux. Hmm. And in a way, I feel like maybe that is our role, is hmm. flux. And so that I think that that's kind of like what you're saying, is that our role is to create flux, hmm. in a way, and to be part of the flux that keeps us moving and changing and alive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I also challenge the idea of, what is normal? What does even normal mean? And I'm not sure. Like, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, I mean... <laughs> Like, all of these ideas, I feel like as a species, we are sort of jugglers in training in some ways. Now, especially because there are so many more people, even though non-binary people are a small percentage of that total population, because there are so many people in general, non-binary people are much more visible. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the total numbers have become much larger and harder to ignore. Mm-hmm. Which is good because, as I said, going back to the image of a juggler in training, now we're given more like balls in the air having to do, and we're standing on some kind of, you know, like fulcrum. <laughs> that image comes to mind when I think about it because you always existed, as you said. Native American nations, I've heard similar to what you talked about <clears throat> in your own nation. But I forget which nation it was that considered non-binary people or nations that have recognized multiple genders consider non-binary people to offer more perspectives or both perspectives Mm -hmm. because they stand somewhere in the middle. Right. So, again, you know, whether or not we are meant to, (laughs) you know, I put that in quotes because we don't know whether or not there is actually a plan. Right, or there's a universal being, or like one being that's saying, ah, you're my puppets, do this plan, right? Whether or not there is a plan or not, because when we talk about purpose, there's always the the idea of something (laughs) bigger than us actually having a plan. Even if that being existed, what if they're just as confused as we are? What if they're just (laughs) a toddler? Uh-huh. You know, and yeah. we're just ants who are being accidentally stepped on. We don't right. we don't know what the relationship is. We don't know if any of these things exist, despite all the things that we do know. Despite the fact that we're trying to get to Mars, <clears throat> I just feel like we know so little. It's true. I don't feel like I know very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think um, I think that's one of the things that we all need to realize is how little we know, despite how much we think we know. And that's kind of hard, right? That balance between the ego and the awareness of our placement in the universe, which is growing, vast and growing. Right. <laughs> so it's it's always interesting to think about. It has an anchoring ability to pinpoint to why non-binary people exist. But even if there is no reason, so what? You exist. Right, exactly. Why do you have to find a reason for other people to approve that you exist? Who cares? You exist. Right. I think for me it's just just the thought that we exist and people enjoy being among other people and being part of the community. And I believe as time goes on, we will become a more visible part of the community mm-hmm. and 
maybe there's not like a specific societal role for us, but we will find more of our places in society. And I'd like to encourage everyone to come, you know, if you're a queer person, I would love to meet you at one of the queer poetry salons. We typically do it on the last Wednesday of every month. It is a safe space where you can come and share your work as a queer person and be among people like you. And it's not to exclude anyone from what we're doing, but it is to just say this space is for us. And this is a place where we can be vulnerable with our words and grow with one another. And I'm very grateful to Equality Arizona for encouraging me to organize community this way because it's been very impactful in my life and it seems to me that the poets that have been coming to the series are engaged with it and there's a feeling of heart Mm -hmm. between us. Feeling of heart or hurt? Heart. Like a heart, you know, like a connection that feels like it's really emanating from the heart between us you know the metaphorical (laughs) part yeah the last might interview another indigenous or self-identifying indigenous poet she had talked about how sometimes you just want to be with your own people Mm -hmm. because then there are things that you don't have to explain because it's exhausting to have to explain all the time yeah and I, i wish people would understand that that wanting the safe space partly is because you don't feel like the rest of the world let you just be. So it's good to have that, and I'm glad you're doing that. I'm glad you told me about it, so I can announce this. Is it open to people that are not in... Yes, but we just ask that the people who come be respectful and that those who share should be part of the LGBTQ Mm -hmm. plus community. community. I like to just say the queer community because I think it... It's one word and it kind of covers everything. I also think the acronym is becoming longer and longer. At some point, it's it just not going to be feasible to keep saying. Right, <laughs> yeah. It's getting... It is, it is... It's a long acronym. and <laughs> Obviously, like, I'm certain that there have been queer poets since the beginning of poetry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just in the 20th century, there's so many queer poets that have been very openly queer. And mm-hmm. for so long, I believe that that queerness was kind of like everybody knew, but nobody knew. Mm-hmm. The New York school, like every pretty much every last one of them were queer people. The, the San Francisco Berkeley Renaissance, they're like mostly queer people. Mm-hmm. Um, all these different movements, you know, have been really, really queer and so, like, to be able to just say, okay, here, we're, this is queer poetry, and, like, we're operating within that. So to be able to, like, put it together, it's, like, it's, it's genre building, and it's mm-hmm. meant for my purposes to empower us to be able to speak freely about our experiences right. and to create new forms, new styles of poetry, which we can incubate together. Mm. through this series and I think that these are happening across the country there's some great work being done in Tucson T.C. Tolbert's doing some trans and non-binary poetry workshops through the mm. Academy of American Poets and his uh, oh, poet laureateship there I went okay. to one this week and it was amazing nice so I think it's happening more and more but it's just to say I think it's wonderful when we can have really diverse artistic events and then sometimes we need to have events that it's like it's this type of people we're giving visibility to Mm -hmm. us Mm 
based on the response that I've been getting, I feel like people are hungry for this and Maybe. they're showing up. So Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. I, I'm looking forward to attending one of myself. Cool. I think it also these spaces, when you're not feeling like you're pitting yourself against the rest of the world, you are also more free to explore your own identity because it's not just one, right? It's not, right. There's not just one definition of what's queer or what's lesbian or gay, you know, any any right. of these labels. For sure. And it's good to good to be able to see that, good to be able to go to a community and say, hey, here's me and I stand on this part of this section of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So, again, I'm really glad that you're doing that. And I'm glad that Equality Arizona has hired you specifically to do that. So it's, right. it's good to have that exposure, as you said, because I feel... Like some parts of, again, going to this, what's normal, what's not normal, what's like a curiosity almost, is not knowing that these people existed, have always existed. And being only exposed to certain types, you know, the flamboyant gay men is always the stereotype. And being able to break that. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Here's Jack. Right. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, Which is fine. Awesome. It is. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah, it's, thing. Yeah, but, but I know it's one particular role, and that has become the only. Uh, fortunately, nowadays less less so, but in that time when something like Will and Grace just came out, that seemed to be the only. Despite the fact that that show had two gay characters, right. you know, Jack was the one who was driving. A particular stereotype. Right, and I think maybe in our society, too, that maleness is elevated, so even a very flamboyant gay man is still a man, and so their their way of being flamboyant is almost like a macho way of being flamboyant. Like a peacock. Right, and so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, oh, the ultimate, like, men-loving men. That's like the ultimate form of patriarchy, in a way. Mm. Interesting. Which, of course, men loving men, it's a beautiful thing, but maybe the way that it's been elevated and given agency right away in the society is like part of being in a patriarchal society. And I think now you see more of a move towards elevating the feminine side of that and the neutral. I personally am on a mission to help dismantle patriarchy. Oh, good. So, um, <laughs> but we love you, gay men. We love you very much. And yes, we yes. Love, we and love you. We love everyone. You, right? Yeah, whether right. you're flamboyant or, or macho, <laughs> you know, that's right. your choice. And again, it's having the choice to think about where you want to be on the spectrum. Right. And making that decision for yourself rather than having society say, no, 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 you're not gay because you're not flamboyant <laughs> or something like that. Again, I, I personally felt like Jack was such a, besides the fact that he was such a peacock, such a memorable character, is that he also pinpointed to a point in the spectrum where people are kind of comfortable in saying, oh, this is what gay men are in some way. The stereotype that that character created helped people to say, this is the definition. Oh, and right. I couldn't, it's sort of giving people a sense of comfort. Or, yeah, 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 because that is this the is definition. What, this is yeah, what yeah. we are. Because when the definition is nebulous, people want to put things in, we want to categorize. We can't right. help it, partly because we don't have the <laughs> mental capacity. Just our species don't have the mental capacity to 
handle all the information coming at us. So um, it gave people a comforting point to hold on to. At the same time, it's very restricting for people who are being defined by this narrow kind of narrative. Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned before, I was reading through some of my old poems, and I came back to this poem called Afraid, which after you write your poem, I was like, oh yeah, that is very similar. When I first chose it, I thought maybe I was offering a counterpoint because of the way I read your poem. Right. But now I feel like, oh yeah, this is kind of the essence of what you were trying to get through. Mm -hmm. I'll read that and we can talk about it. Okay, sure. So again, it's called Afraid. In the darkness, my truth comes out, roaming the night like a vampire it hides, afraid of the light. Reason I will in the morning explain this way what I'm feeling, gagging my needs, false dependencies, drowning that which must surface eventually. In the darkness, safety I feel, hide my face from the truth I know, burying the seed, rooting and sprouting, breaking a silent tomb, eventually. Oh, it's a lovely poem. Thank you. I was trying to think why I wrote that, and I can't right? <laughs> remember. It's like, it's more than 25 years old. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's a good life for a poem. Have you read it many times? No, actually. I read it a few times over the past few years, not out loud to people. But when I was looking through my stuff, because I had thought I lost, I did actually lose a lot of my old poems from the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have them on floppy, but I don't know if I can find a computer where I could put a floppy, and I don't know right. if it's survival. <laughs> oh, floppy years. discs. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that wow. Old. I know. There must be some place where you can do that. There must be. I would like to get them back. Yeah. I wonder if you could even open the files. I know. That's that's the thing. They're on DOS or something. Wow. (laughs) Well, ASCII readers should be able to read them, I think. You can always go back to that. Yeah. (laughs) They're old. So that's why I can't I can't quite remember. Logically, I want to think it's something about my sexuality because I was starting to find out like my preferences, mm-hmm. and I think that might have been it. The other possibility might have been just my first long term relationship because we were not out in the open mm-hmm. because of parental disapproval and whatnot. Right. So it could have been either of those. But I just felt like it really fed into the idea of, even though it's not about the LGBTQ plus community, but this idea of being afraid to come out with who you are because you might be rejected or worse, right, right. killed mm-hmm. because of it. So I thought, oh, I'll read that poem. When I read through it, I latch on to weird things when I read poems, but I liked that you used the word eventually twice. Mm -hmm. And I was really curious how you would read that out loud because it's just, I'm always interested when words repeat Mm. in poems. I felt like having, well, it's not, it's a little bit beyond the halfway point where the first eventually happens and then the end is eventually. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like the word was kind of like a, a little bit of a vehicle that sends the poem into the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And so now maybe like the poem is being read. Eventually. <laughs> all these years later, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I really appreciate you reading it. And I couldn't certainly relate to the, the feeling that, or that it seems like is being expressed in here that, you know, that just times where you, you have to go through that quote unquote dark night of the soul. Mm, yes, yes. You know, and facing your desire to live a certain way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The way you were talking about it, it made me think of my own mother, who's a cisgendered Creole woman in Louisiana. I remember a story that she told where she really wanted to be a doctor, and no person in the family had gone to college, mm. and no woman certainly was supposed to work <laughs> at all. Like, mm-hmm. you were just supposed to stay home and raise kids. So she did become educated, but she settled for being a teacher because... Mm. that was more what her family would accept. Yeah, yeah. A doctor was too good (laughs) to become. Right, right. And that's good for me to remember that, like, oh, my community is not the only one that suffers from societal Mm -hmm. restrictions. Yeah, I feel like we have a lot of divides amongst different communities, and we kind of self-segregate in some ways. And people from one community who might suffer prejudices against them might not be able to relate that to other communities. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's sad. I wish it wasn't the case, but we are flawed humans, and sometimes we are incapable of looking beyond our own suffering, which is sad, because in that suffering, we can, we should be able to relate to each other. And happiness, too, we should be able to, but we so seldom do, right? Right. <laughs> and um. Thank you for telling me about your mom's story, and I feel like it's not the same for my mom, but she has her own like she accepted the condition that society put on her and so she was trying to teach me that and she also put limits on what she could be because of what she went through some because of her gender but some also because what she personally went through in life was she a first generation american no actually okay yeah yeah my grandmother is very interesting my mom but in different ways. I feel more a kinship toward my grandmother in terms of personality rather than my mom. And also, I think part of it is the upbringing. Sometimes you can just take two steps forward and the next generation take a step back. back right? Yeah. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Well, I think that that's one of the reasons that I really love being a poet. Mm-hmm. Every time I get to talk to a poet, even if we're doing totally different types of poetry, mm-hmm. the work that we do through the poem and the object that we create and the center of gravity that the poem has, they're really magical things that allow us to break down barriers. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling almost even teary-eyed just because to be able to speak to another human being and like when we came into the interview, you know, we had all just kind of come from the city and people are feeling oh like <laughs> and through the poem we can open up to one another and speak to one another about our life's experiences from our hearts right, right. and and see each other as human beings right. and share experience right. I mean, like see how much we share in terms of emotions and i think that's part of what i enjoyed about doing this podcast is to know that somehow even though we might see each other as coming from very totally different backgrounds, we can still share some more emotions. 
even if the experiences they come from might not be the same. Right. Because there's still this shared fear of will people accept us for who we, we are. Right. That we need to hide who we are just because we want to be accepted. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I've really been enjoying getting to know you. I'm so thankful to the spirit of poetry for bringing people like you into my life. Um, thank you. And, you know, all the wonderful poets that I meet everywhere that I go. We're all different types of people. I do I do believe that there is, like, maybe the like an extra crazy circuit in a poet's brain or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not crazy, but, you know, like, good crazy, like, tantric crazy, like, crazy wisdom, like, lightning wisdom. Uh, well, that, looking at it in a different way, right? Because right, we're, right. We, we want to experience express our raw feelings in a non-shouting or even shouting but in a pretty way right (laughs) and in that we have to think extra hard about it there's a lot of self-reflection involved i love jack spicer the poet jack spicer and he said that poets are radios like i'm saying this that we have like some kind of antenna or a lightning rod you know and the poem comes out and all of these kind of electric interactions, you know, kind of like interstellar broadcast poetry news transmits it on the um, signal yeah. to us, maybe. <laughs> I think because we have to think of different ways of expressing sometimes very similar feelings, and we use our own experiences that inform our metaphors, Right. that it allows other people to tune in. It's almost like a funnel. It allows people to gravitate toward that particular image or the feeling conveyed by that image and say, oh, yeah, that's what I felt before. Or I've had that feeling. I recognize this. Or even just I recognize that imagery. Oh, how interesting to use that imagery to express this particular idea. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what poetry does and that's what art does as well. It allows different entry points, like your poem. You don't right. all have to read it the same way. But even though I read it the way I did your poem, the feeling was still there. And that's how I was able to pick my poem. Right. So it's really cool about that, that the central tenant, the feeling that you had still came through, even though we read it completely differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a cool thing. Yeah. You said you're almost done with the manuscript, or you are done. I've been sending a version of it out mm-hmm. to some places, and I'm <clears throat> revising it. It continues to evolve mm-hmm. as, I, as I send it out. For anybody that has sent manuscripts out, it's really expensive, and it's really... Are you doing it through the post, or are you doing it via submittable? Usually through submittable to different presses and different poetry prizes. Yeah, but they want the reading fee. They, yeah, there's usually a reading fee. Yeah. Um, I find that entering the poetry world, is the conventions, it seems like, have not changed as much as they have in music because with music, the digital technology really revolutionized how the record label industry oh. was. Okay. Where at one time, it took major investors to create a record label even smaller labels were very expensive to run and, and mm-hmm. there was a different sort of exchange and with digital technology like anybody could create a record label right so that to be a musician you didn't really have to join the academy 
mm. unless you were going into classical music. Mm. And it feels like with poetry, there's more of a need to go through the university system to get into the mainstream yeah. publishing world. Yeah, because there's still a lot of relationship-based. Right. It's supposed to be merit-based, but I don't know how that works in practice. Or whether or not that works in practice. Yeah, I, I get the similar feeling as well because there's the traditional route, the supply chain of people coming out of MFAs and they're getting the university press. They have a bigger platform in terms of getting the university presses to notice them. Mm-hmm. Whereas independent poets have a harder time to get noticed. I mean, there is self publishing. But in some ways, you kind of get lost in the sea of the many self-publishers out there. Right. And it becomes a popularity contest. And people who write good poetry are not necessarily good marketers. Right. So there's a lot of limits. And again, it's about platform. It's about how big is your platform. I'm sure there are good editors out there who are digging around who are looking at unknown poets, but I don't know how ubiquitous that is. So, yeah, it definitely can be frustrating. And part of the reason why I do this is because I want to create a platform. For For yourself and for others, yeah. Well, especially for others, because I was in publishing for a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I also read a lot about the publishing world and how, because of how it's started, sort of a leisure activity for people who have the means of of being able to do this. And that creates a lot of barriers to entry, just like you said, you know. Gatekeeping. Yeah, and not necessarily conscious. There are conscious aspects of it, but there are also unconscious aspects of it, like if you're rich, you don't think about a submission fee of $20 as right. a, a huge obstacle for people who have no money. Right. But if you're poor or, if, yeah, and I've been through periods where it's like that 20 bucks was a lot of money for me. But yeah. And I think, you know, to kind of swing back to what we were talking about earlier, I mean, I think that's another part of the reason it's good to, if you're a poet, if you're a musician, if you're an artist, my encouragement is to do what you can to elevate your own community and those that you care about, because where those platforms may not exist or may be hard to access for certain communities, create your own entry point. Create a place where you can get elevated because I've always noticed that by helping others, it helps me. Mm. It creates a positive feedback loop. That's why I'm really grateful to be able to do some work to help people that I consider to be part of my own community. A lot of them don't have a platform, they don't have a, a place to read. Or they don't have a... Right. Or they feel safe about reading what they want to read. Right. And even if it's not a a place, maybe they just, they're not the person that's being called all the time to read. Um, My experience, both in music and poetry, is that sometimes you just need that one first shot. Yeah. And people notice you and then you can build on those successes. Right. But you do need that first one. Yes. And sometimes it just takes someone saying... Yeah, come do this. And so that's the spirit that I'm trying to operate under with the work I'm doing now is like to say, hey, this person needs a chance. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, Or, hey, let's create lots of chances for one another. Right. And right. let's just take control of the situation for ourselves. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, I think that's what the digitizing of music as well as poetry has been able to do is to sort of democratize it yes. a little bit more. If you still want to be recognized by the traditional publishers, it has to become better. At the same time, there are still similar barriers to entry, which is very frustrating. Right. At the same time, you do have the option now of, of circumventing that by going the self-publishing route or by creating outlets like the podcast or YouTube channels. There are many different ways to get your work across. The problem is is a matter of noise, though, because, as I said, you know, there are so many people who are self-publishing now that sometimes it's very hard to get through to keep your head above the crowd and get noticed. But I think it's sort of like different strokes for different folks because not everybody needs that recognition from the traditional press. Right. Um, yeah. Some people just want to be heard. Right. And some people might just want, let's say they do an episode on the podcast, they just want to be able to transmit that to other people and say, hey, I did this. So I think that diversity of goals is also helpful in terms of having the different methods to satisfy those goals. It's good. Totally. Yeah, I'm really glad that we have more choices now. Traditional publishers still have much more to tackle in terms of who they end up representing because it seems like old, tired, almost stereotypes. Yeah, and I think you can use, like, two of my favorite poets are Tommy Pico, who's a queer Kumeyaay poet. Mm-hmm. Kumeyaay is a, a native indigenous nation in California. And then Oriana Ryans, who is a really brilliant poet. And her first book was self-published, and it's called um, Cour de Leon. Oh. It's written in, like, a live journal. Okay. And it became kind of a cult classic, and that led to her being published on in more traditional ways. Right. And the right. same with Tommy Pico's work. He was a zinester. Mm-hmm. And a Tumblr poet, mm. like became a really popular Tumblr poet, and has since published four books and is working on a screenplay. Both of those have been inspirational to me. My first book was done through a record label. Even though they're an established publisher, they're not a traditional literary publisher. Right, right. So I've, I, I'm kind of creating my own way through that. And I, but I am hoping to be able to be published with more established publishers. But I mean, if I want to get something out throughout my life, I'm always going to do it. In the way that presents itself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and why yeah. not i mean it's the 21st century so you know we have there's a lot of options now yeah so. there are which is good and i think one of the reasons why music publishers have become much more democratized is because they were forced right yeah and i don't know if the the publishing world has been forced in some ways as well but i don't think to the extent as the musical world. Actually, recently I've been wondering why I want to go the traditional route. Why is it the ultimate goal is the traditional right. route? Talking about decolonizing the mind, right? right. <laughs> there are some practical reasons where one is platform. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always platform because they do have the distribution channels. No matter right. what. So that's the thing. But anyway, enough shop talk. <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 we're getting in there. I love red and purple together, by ah, the way. Thank you. Yeah. For those of you listening, she's got a beautiful purple coat and a, a red shirt, and they, yeah, look, yeah. they look wonderful together. Thank you. Yeah, I'm doing color blocking by accident. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Just in closing, <laughs> where can people see you read, first of all, and how can they follow you? I have a Facebook page if you search for 
for Tanner Menard. You may be able to find me. I, I kind of try to keep my Facebook somewhat private, Tanner. mainly because it's Facebook and I <laughs> would love to just see that platform busted up by the government somehow, <laughs> especially after they endorsed a certain person. I have an Instagram. My Instagram is one word in void no you. And if you do a Google search for Tanner Menard, you will find links to publications of my albums and journals that have published my poetry. And if you look on Full Spectrum Records, you can find my chapbook and album which is called Wanna Live in the World with a Whole Face which is on the surface it's about facial recognition technology so it's like the idea that I want to live in the world with a whole face mm-hmm. and I want it to be less commodity more a thing which can lose itself is mm-hmm. how that title poem was all about I want my face just to be a face mm-hmm. and not something that can be commodified that can be used for surveillance that can be used to track me that can be used to mm-hmm. turn me into little bits <laughs> you know, become a part of the data set yeah I don't like it so <laughs> yeah. yeah understandable and so is the best place to see you read the Queer Poetry Salon yeah I will sometimes read at those events I like to go out to Tucson to read because I love their poetry oh, community cool. over there and yeah. I'm always open to participating in readings I, I kind of try to avoid open mics because I feel like my poetry requires a little bit of quiet to surround it and so for me open mics are a little they just don't feel right there's some that are very quiet if it's specifically poetry they tend to be quieter right if it's just an open mic for whoever right then the louder performance poets tend to get more notice right yeah but I think people are generally respectful yeah they are of Um, course yeah but you know when it's in a bar you have no control over it it's a bar I was performing with a jazz ensemble once playing noise. And the noise that I was playing in conjunction with the jazz was like very unconventional. And someone got really upset because they felt like I was destroying the jazz. And maybe in some ways that was the intent conceptually. And so they came and turned down. They came and turned me down. And I learned from that, which is that sometimes it's better to read or perform less and to really choose your venues. Yeah, yeah. And where you can get a lot out of one really good performance Mm -hmm. and spend less energy than doing it everywhere and your work not fitting in. Yeah, it's true. You always have to choose and you have to give up some. Depends on also where you are in your performing life. Some people just want the exposure. It doesn't matter. And they're kind of just throwing everything at the wall and see what sticks. Anyway, thank you very much. I really appreciate you coming to talk with me on Poets and Muses. Thank you so much. I had a beautiful time. And thank you for the contribution that you're making to poetry in Phoenix. We appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate being appreciated. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on poetsandmuses.com or via social media on Instagram, Twitter, or SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.